Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. Sitting here, 8.09 a.m., Friday morning, just ticked over to 8.10. Got our cat Rocky sleeping and snoring on my right. Hey, why are we recording this so late in the week instead of Monday evening or or Tuesday when I normally do? Well, it's been a busy week, y'all. Among the busiest weeks of IndyCar happenings in quite a while, even during the season. This this stands out as one of the busier, crazier weeks. So in about, what, an hour, hour and a half, something like that from now, uh, we will have a driver announcement. Three seats, full-time seats left open in IndyCar, that being with Dale Coyne Racing, with Rick Ware Racing, Chip Ganassi Racing, and Hunkos Hollinger Racing. We will have uh, a driver finalized, formalized, and announced among one of those three teams. I can tell you that wrote this story, started writing it on Wednesday, filed it Thursday morning, and been holding off on it for a variety of very good reasons. Nonetheless, you get to read about that here. You might be listening to this right when it goes live. So uh, I'm going to hit the throttle here in just a moment, get rolling with the show brought to us by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Timing of some of these news items this week come in after the questions uh, were compiled and fired my way by our friend Jerry Siddeth. So I think for next week, we'll probably have plenty of questions about the Marketing VP change at IndyCar with SJ Lutke being, uh, let's see, they agreed to part ways or something along those lines. I think that's the phrasing. Uh, There's a lot to that and both positive and negative, but I think that's something that we'll definitely be talking a lot about next week. Had news come in within the last couple days that Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, team president Piers Phillips tendered his resignation i know that's the phrasing i was told resigning whether that like sj it's 100 percent the case or not i don't actually know one of those were they uh were they pushed or did they leave on their own don't know part of what i'm working on to try and find out and figure out here a little bit more and some other interesting news the the iowa ticket price stuff i know we've got a number of questions about that Written about that on Racer already. Um, definite huge thanks to some members of the Prue Day listener group uh, who gave me some very detailed information about their adventures trying to renew tickets, fainting at the uh, increased prices. And then after they uh, they woke up and picked themselves up off the floor, shared some of the, uh, the actual numbers that went into what they're facing for that increase. Also an interesting week, frankly massive amount of pushback from the series uh, wanting me to understand that I am looking at this the wrong way and maybe others who have said I can't go back because I can't afford it are looking at it the wrong way because there's such high value being offered. Uh, I've had one team owner send me a nasty message uh, telling me the story was total BS and uh, basically you know the accusations that I'm trying to destroy the event, uh, hurting the event. And I'm like, I think I might've written the most positive stories about the inaugural event more than anyone. So 
no, I'm not trying to destroy this. I just speak for the fans. The fans reach out to me and say, hey, we love something. We hate something. I'm their voice. And so what you're hearing is their voice. But if you want to blame me, go for it. You don't get into this job, by the way, if you like to be loved. So, uh, yeah, that team owner ended their uh, little verbal dump by saying they're never going to talk to me again. So, anyways, fun times. Uh, but, yeah, that's just a little bit of background up front of what is a happening. And now let's jump into your Q&A. Once again, all brought to us by our pal, Jerry Suddeth. And I want to say one final time. How thankful I am for the members of the Prude listener group. Uh, more than a hundred of you, many of you rally together and do really good things. And we're a couple days away from the close of folks being able to donate at prukids.org, P-R-U-E-K-I-D-S dot O-R-G. This website, this initiative created by one of the leaders of the Prude, Cassie Johnston, she just as upstanding a person as you're going to find raised more than $7,000 to buy toys for kids in the greater Indianapolis area. Those who otherwise would not have a holiday upcoming holidays filled with gifts and something to smile about. So just so proud of them and so many of you for taking part in that. And if you want to join, not only help from that fundraising standpoint, but if you just want to make some new friends, Send an email. It's prudayrocks at gmail.com to join the Pruday. P-R-U-E-D-A-Y-R-O-C-K-S. Prudayrocks at gmail.com. And one of the leaders there will grab that email within a couple days and onboard you. I think most of what they do uh, is private chat on Discord. I'm not a member of it. Uh, but, yeah, it's a lot of really good folks who enjoy each other, talk about racing, talk about life, the universe, and everything, support each other. You need some friends, you like some racing friends that you wish you had more of, send that email, prudayrocks at gmail.com, and you'll have that new family. All right, let's do, uh, let's do a little bit of Q&A here. Where should we go first? Hey, funny, uh, Iowa, definitely still coming across like a fart in church, poop in a punch bowl, whatever you want to call it. Why don't we kick off with Ryan Terpstra says who is ed sheeran and what did he do to my iowa ticket prices so seriously i've never heard of him so i've heard of ed sheeran not like i think i've heard a combined 30 seconds of his music ryan this is more of a generational thing you know i think i'm like twice his age or whatever but i was unaware until indycar told me and reinforced over and over again that ed sheeran is the number two touring act touring musician in the world i'm not sure who the number one is is it beyonce is it harry styles is it uh insane clown posse i don't know but i'm told he's truly the number two global music artist and also carrie underwood i'm told is the number one country artist i guess i could say in the world although it's kind of more domestic and regional but uh these are two big upgrades according to them for next year's high v indycar weekend i'll take all that on face value i guess fortunately unfortunately the type of music that they're presenting at these races uh it's not a genre or genres that i listen to so i just take that on face value what you're mentioning here 
is 100% correct, Ryan. The, what do you call it, artist fee, participation fee, just, hey, you want me to perform, this is the dollar figure? That, I am told, is the primary reason for the doubling, tripling, quadrupling, whatever, massive spike in prices. The folks that will be on those stages singing and strumming guitars and drumming and doing all kinds of fun stuff is way higher than what it was in 2022. Therefore, or their how, or therewith, that cost increase is being passed on to y'all, the IndyCar racing slash country slash pop music fan. Um, yeah, so I don't know if blame Ed, hashtag blame Ed, is a, a hashtag for anyone to start, but the belief is, hey, these acts are so popular, there's no way people could avoid coming out at whatever ticket price. I have a feeling, at least for the music portion of the High V IndyCar Weekend, you're going to have a lot of people there because these are big, big acts. I just wonder, as I've written, is this going to, though, shrink the IndyCar portion of the audience? When the IndyCars are on track for practice, qualifying, and the doubleheader races, what are those crowds going to look like? Is this going to become a de facto music weekend where IndyCar fans who, if you're not a huge fan of those musical acts, might not be inclined to pay, I think what might be the highest ticket price, if we're talking the, the best tickets available, the highest ticket prices possibly in IndyCar history. I know that if you want to buy the best available for the Indy 500, I think as I looked, it was somewhere in the 250-ish dollar range. And if there's some other, you know, thousand dollar super ticket, I apologize for missing that. But by and large, I think if you are just an IndyCar fan who loves ovals and wants to see a double header and isn't so much concerned about the music, unless you can get one of the limited number of uh, lowest price flex tickets. If you're having to pay for sitting in any of the other better grandstand seats, yeah, uh, I think you might be paying more than anyone's ever paid to watch an IndyCar race um, that isn't opting in for some sort of, you know, behind the uh, the the gold rope. Uh, here's the super uh, hospitality tour, and we're going to give you the, the absolute top treatment. I think this might be setting a new record, but I can tell you... Uh, writing about it <laughs> i know i haven't made more friends within the series or paddock but hey whatever uh i work for y'all uh let's go to our pal austin sutton says i've watched every indycar season since 2016 and i'm looking for another season to watch during the off season says, what year would you suggest as a great historic season that i missed out on as a newish indycar fan great great question austin and thanks for sending this in first one that came to mind was 1999 i'm hoping the good old youtubes has the full season there for you um I, i'm sure i don't know if it's something you would find all on one account whether that's indycar or someone else maybe you have to jump around to a few different places but 99 was epic without a doubt and i'll just i don't want to tell you a lot about it because i just want you to experience it on your own but faster cars than just seem 
possible on earth driver caliber just taken into the stratosphere real heat between many of those top teams even within some of those teams the drivers weren't all necessarily super happy with each other dynamic of younger guard coming in trying to knock down the old guard all kinds of amazing things so 99 go check that out and after you consume 99 circle back and ask for another because i've got more to share we're gonna go to our pal ed joris says what kind of benefit if any will hpd honda performance development get from running a 2024 indycar engine during the 2023 imsa season in the acura air x06 i feel like we might have answered this one before ed but i don't mind answering it again because i'm pretty stoked about this uh getting on a plane sunday morning leaving out the door at 6 15 a.m headed to daytona be there for the monday setup day and then tuesday for the official gtp test with all the new cars there including the acura using its 2024 indycar engine uh cadillacs porsches and also bmws there too to uh not so much cover the test just as an individual event i'm sure i'll generate a you know a little bit of content from it most of what i'm going there to do though is capture a bunch of video for a lot of kind of gtp 101 explainer videos to roll out as we get closer to the uh, roar in the races later in january but we'll get to hopefully see this motor for the first time in person i did get to see the cam cover for the motor when i visited hpd in september so i hope i get to see the rest of it ed but you're curious about what does this do what value would hpd get from spending a year using this motor in endurance racing before it goes live in indycar competition and the answers are are i think all pretty obvious and that is you want to talk about reliability you want to talk about putting this motor through torturous tests during these long races short races you name it in imsa over the calendar year this is like an indycar testing program gone wild this should benefit them massively granted engines not running in the same exact configuration right we think about how long an engine needs to last obviously 24 hours straight in the back of one of the Meyershank racing Acuras or the Wayne Taylor racing Acuras it's a lot different than one that's going to run a couple hundred miles at a time maybe as many as 500 all at once but that's three hours three and a half hours of competition compared to 24 straight so the IMSA motor the IMSA version of these engines obviously detuned a little bit um don't rev quite as high. 12,000 RPM is the limit in IndyCar. I don't know the exact number. I think 10, 9 to 10,000 RPM is what they're doing in IMSA. I'll get that confirmed here. But these are things that now, instead of being rebuilt on a somewhat regularish basis or being able to withstand high, high power levels for shorter durations, now need to last a really long time. Even in the detuned state, they're going to have engine failures it's always the norm every new gtp manufacturer will i think they are just going to be in a pretty amazing place ed compared to ilmore which you're asking about who build the chevy engines coming here in 2024 uh can't fault hpd acura and honda for saying you know what we see a reason and a value to take the same design 
and apply it to both major series we compete in. Um, is that cheating? Is that them getting ahead of the curve, being able to take all this information they will get from the motor and how much they can learn about it and uh, pass on any of those improvements while the IndyCar version of that motor is still being prepared for 2024? Look, it's a huge benefit. Uh, obviously, Cadillac is involved in uh, the IMSA GTP formula within the Chevy racing family. Ilmore, as you mentioned, is there. Could they have decided to bolt their 2.4 liter uh, twin turbo V6 into that Cadillac and do just as Acura slash Honda has done? They could have. They just chose not to. So could that mean that when we get to St. Petersburg in 2024, Honda will be possibly ahead of Chevy in terms of durability testing and or just knowing more and rooting out any reliability problems uh, to a higher level than its uh, arch rival at Chevy? It absolutely does. It, it means that could absolutely be the case. doesn't guarantee it, though. Uh, if there's one thing I've learned in IndyCar since Chevy came back in 2012, never underestimate them. Ever, 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 ever. So, yeah. Should be an advantage for Honda, Ed, but <laughs> Chevy is a, a great track record of uh, defying everything. Let's keep going here with our friend Maddie McDonald. So awesome to meet Maddie at one of the races last year. Love this question too, Maddie. You say, as a non-binary person who just today began the process of coming out the place I've worked for 15 years. I have to ask, where are the LGBTQ plus folks in IndyCar, especially trans and non-binary people? Maddie goes on to say, I am now actively trying to change the unwritten, quote, don't ask, don't tell culture around gender and sexuality at this privately owned company for the better. And I'm wondering if a similar situation exists in IndyCar and or Penske Entertainment. Also goes on to add, oh, sweet of you, Maddie, you don't have to, uh, don't have to say you, Marshall, been wonderful, and a huge shout-out to the Day for being wonderful. But what about the paddock, the latter series paddocks? Younger millennials and Gen Zs are coming out at ever-increasing rates, actively demonstrating to young, aspiring trans and non-binary drivers, engineers, and mechanics. IndyCar welcomes them wholeheartedly, will benefit everyone and it helps ensure the future of the sport we all love and then closes with uh, much love uh, to myself my wife chabrell and the kitties only rocky's here so rock maddie says uh, much love but you keep snoring you bum great question maddie i know that this topic in general makes whatever percentage of folks uncomfortable it's okay a lot of things that makes folks uncomfortable and uh, but we don't ignore them. Specifically on the Penske Entertainment side and the IndyCar side, I'm not aware of much, if anything, to be frank. I'm not saying that there is nothing happening and there are no initiatives in place. I'm just saying I'm not aware of them. Where there's a bit of a distinction to draw strictly based on what I do know 
is on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway side. On the track side, I do know a very, very fine person by the name of Doug Bowles is extremely uh, forward and engaged in this area of total inclusiveness. For example, last year, I'm just looking back through uh, my emails, Maddie. I uh, got an email at the beginning of February from Richard Morris, uh, who is a UK, I believe UK-based organization by the name of Racing Pride. Racingpride.com is their website. And uh, Richard was asking, hey, I realize that we're across the pond, but we still in this global age, we're trying to increase the... Uh, participation, acceptance, involvement of the uh, LBGTQ plus community in motor racing. How might we connect with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Indy 500, and do something, collaborate in some way, shape, or form? And Doug, uh, Doug was not only his usually amazing self, reached right back out, connected with, uh, with Richard, also mentioned, which I was not aware of, say this, not aware of, probably largely because I live thousands of miles away from uh, Indianapolis, but uh, in his response mentioned that uh, both IMS and IndyCar, and I do again think this is maybe more on the IMS side than anything, says that they do work and have an ongoing and uh, continually developing relationship with a uh, local group called Indy Pride. Um, and then also continued to uh, was continuing to say, "Hey, let's keep working together. Let's figure out stuff to do." And so that's the one main area. If I'm talking a program or a collaboration um, that is is ongoing, and so I do need to circle back with Richard just to find out what areas or what ways IMS slash IndyCar and Racing Pride have been able to uh, link up and hopefully work together. But that's the, the Indy pride organization that, uh, just say the speedway, um, works with. That's the main one that I know of. That is a little bit different than, Hey, we've created our own internal program. If there is an internal pro or one that they have created and are fostering and trying to grow, again, just my ignorance and not knowing about it, but at least, I know of the connection with a external organization, uh, that being Indy Pride. I can say for sure, Maddie, looking at the paddock in the last few years, and I do mean few, there's been a slightly increasing number of out and fully expressed members, crew members by and large, mechanics, other areas uh, on the team side, uh, from the LBGTQ plus uh, community. And to my knowledge, within their teams, they are being treated, viewed, and held as fully expressed, fully welcomed, fully loved, and respected and appreciated members of those teams. That would be 
something that I can say I don't see a ton of folks who fall into this category, but I can say I've seen the numbers increase slightly over the last couple of years and for those teams and the teammates around, there seems to be a pretty positive view uh, on this exact topic, acceptance. This being a very different thing than what it would have been five years ago, 10, 20. I think I might have mentioned this in the past on an episode. Um, obviously, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, persons of every color, every acronym, every lifestyle. I mean, it's a huge melting pot. I think folks know that. That's normal. That's what I've grown up in. This is the thing that's totally normal to me. The thing that I love most yeah, in terms of a hobby or profession, that being racing, yeah, that's not what I found when I <laughs> got out and up into the professional ranks, even the amateur ranks. There's just a huge, huge change, uh, huge change in this thought process, this area of acceptance. And so I'm so happy to see that this is happening slowly and incrementally. Maddie, again, I'm not saying, hey, all of a sudden, everything's perfect. No, by no means. There's still a lot of folks with uh, very old mindsets, very closed minds. It's going to take time. I also know that some of the folks that I worked with back in the day who were uh, gay, lesbian, etc., cetera, uh, who I knew, they knew, we knew, but they did not want to let that be known outside of the small circle uh, that they worked within on the team. Or even, it was all obvious, we all knew, if, you know, she, when she was done working on the car, would get picked up by her girlfriend, and off they would go and live their lives, just like any other mechanic would get picked up by their whomever, but kept that completely walled off never discussed, never acknowledged, never anything. And obviously, uh, that would be the right of the individual here to work. What I do outside of work, none of y'all's business. Uh, who I love, none of y'all's business. It's everybody's prerogative, obviously. Just say that I can think of one or two folks that I worked with where it might have made me a little bit sad in hindsight to think that in that era, 20 plus years ago, the general culture was one of keep that all walled off secret and don't let anybody know because I might get fired uh, or I might just be ridiculed, harassed, and, and made miserable unless I just truly cut all that part of my life out. So I'm happy to say I am seeing a change. Uh, would say it's more team-based, Matty, than anything, right? There are some teams. Uh, let me point to Aaron McLaren SP, for example, and give them a big high five and say, you know what? If we are talking true diversity of colors, sexual orientations, just across the board, I think Aaron McLaren SP might be the top model of a team where you go, oh, that's cool. Like, 
anybody is welcome here. If you're good at your job, let's go racing together. And we hope you welcome us into your culture, whatever, again, whether it's ethnic, whatever it is, we hope that you bring that in and enrich us with everything that makes you a rich addition to our team. That's kind of the way I want the world to work. And I think many of us want the world to work. Uh, I'm not saying Aero McLaren is PZ only team. I'm just sharing that. I think among all the IndyCar teams that come to mind, they would be top of the list in this capacity. So I can think of some other teams might be far more old school, Maddie, where, yeah, that this might not be something that is tolerated, accepted or allowed even today because of some very old uh, views of the world being laid down very heavily. So definite big thumbs up to Doug Bowles and IMS. He also says that the Indy Pride organization's actively involved with IndyCar, so I have no reason to doubt that. But again, I only kind of know this through the IMS side. There is progress being made. Take a look if you get next chance. Just look under all the tents. And uh, hopefully you'll get to see some different, different looks than we might have had just from not too long ago. And it actually being a really positive thing. Let me move on to Ed Joris. You're back again talking about audience numbers. Uh, let me jump to some other questions from others right now, Ed. And if I have some time, I'll circle back here for you. Uh, our pal Ryan Caminiti says, MP, realistically, what would it take to get some sort of event in the Northeast U.S.? Say Pocono is a non-starter, which leaves Watkins Glen and Loudon, also known as New Hampshire, is really the only options that can host these cars safely. Say, I love traveling to see them. But boy, seven to ten hours of driving each time is rough. I'd also throw in Richmond. <clears throat> I know that's, <coughs> excuse me, not exactly Northeast. I know it's more east if not a wee bit south but i don't know what the answer is here ryan and the reason i don't know that is because of audience size pocono obviously yeah there's a lot of empty grandstands staring back at the series last couple times we were there got better but still way way too few uh, people buying tickets the Glen was the same exact thing. Uh, very unfortunate. IMSA faces the same problem. So it's not specific to IndyCar. IMSA by no means loads Watkins Glen full of fans when they go racing there. NASCAR is really about the only one we've seen. So Loudon, I just think that ship might have <laughs> set sail on very rainy and slick surface. I don't have an answer here because I can't think of anything that would spark IndyCar to say, yes, let's go do it. Unless one of the tracks that you've mentioned, or maybe ones we haven't thought of would ring them up and say, hi, we have a really big sanctioning fee. We want to pay you to come and race. Could the high dollar value being offered, which I would say wouldn't make a lot of sense for anyone to do that. But if that were to happen, Ryan, do I think IndyCar would say, okay, we'll show up. Um, and hope that there's an audience, possibly. You know, IndyCar is looking to make all the money that it can in whatever ways that it can, so if it could have a very strong 
sanction fee, maybe that would move the needle. But beyond that, I think the answer is there's no real answer on uh, there being something that jumps out as a, yep, we're going there, we're going to race, it's all awesome. Unless we're talking about someone trying to create a street race. I know Graham Rahal was hoping to get something going in Pittsburgh. Uh, that's not happening. It'd probably have to be a street race, the Poughkeepsie Grand Prix, or I don't know what. So maybe that's the flame to uh, try and stoke here, Ryan. Um, can't think of much else, though, that would be uh, would be working. Simon Rafi, you say, do you think the dynamic branding panels used by McLaren F1 at Austin could be the answer to getting the IndyCar LED panels sorted? I don't think so, but I did ask Jay Fry about those. Uh, could that be something IndyCar allows, welcomes, or otherwise? And he said, yeah, we'll look into them for sure. And if there is a way to integrate them into the cars, and teams obviously want to do that, we would be open to it. But having seen them in action for the first time, the caveat was just, well, it's a, a new thing. Like it. Great idea. Now we just need to see how that might work for us. It definitely wouldn't be a 2023 thing. It'd probably be a 24 thing if that were to happen. Why don't we go with our pal Steve Bonek? How you doing, Steve? Appreciate you uh, popping in every week for our hashtag racing family show, by the way, on Twitter spaces every Wednesday, 5 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. No, dummy. 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, he says, hey, MP. Hope you and the family are great. Hi to Rosie and Rocky. Rosie, you're getting love from folks, but you're not here to get it, girl. Uh, you say random questions on buses and the drivers. I know it's probably different for every team, but in general, at a place like, say, Nashville, there are lots of hotels. Do drivers uh, and whatnot use their uh, motor coaches during the day and, say, a hotel at night? You say in contrast to Indy, uh, where for the most part, I assume most of the drivers rarely leave the track. Is that accurate? Say, I assume a place like Road America, where there aren't many hotels. Uh, it's a bus weekend for everybody, right? Pretty close. Here's a little thing behind the scenes that doesn't get spoken about much publicly, but I, boy, hear about it a lot grumpily behind the scenes, Steve. Hey, want to know what a pretty significant profit center uh, has been? existed for as long as teams have been using using motor coaches and drivers have been using motor coaches oh call them ginormous parking fees so you mentioned road america hey you want to camp there and so you buy your general mission ticket and you go park wherever maybe you come in with your little pickup truck and pop out the tent and off you go or who knows, maybe you do have a little, uh, whether it's a full-size motor coach or some sort of tag-along um, trailer or something that you can pop out and stay in. Whatever those numbers are, it's not a ton of money at all. Well, if you're a team owner or driver and you have a big zillion-dollar motor coach, tracks know that those things cost a lot of money and figure well then you must have a lot of money too there team owner driver whomever and so it can be five thousand dollars a weekend to park a bus uh it can be more it is not inexpensive and so if you think about across 17 races not saying that these motor coaches are used everywhere right like long beach for example you don't have uh 
for the most part, uh, except for hospitality motor coaches, you really don't have teams or, or drivers sending their, uh, their buses out to Long Beach because there's hotels right across from the track and they're all super nice. Stay there, just walk across the street, boom, you're at the event. But for the most part, yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know how much y'all earn per year, uh, but I can tell you that if it's somewhere in the fifty, sixty, or seventy thousand uh, dollars per year range, indie car drivers can spend that on just fees to park their buses for a season. Most do not drive their buses, so they actually employ uh, bus drivers who also help them look after other things, kind of like a personal assistant quite often. Uh, so whatever that person's salary happens to be, uh, this is not an inexpensive endeavor. So that's that's the little thing in background, Steve. And you hear fairly frequent complaints of like, I, I don't understand where you get these numbers from because this is just crazy. But anyways, uh, yeah. In most instances where parking a motor coach uh, can be done at an event, that is what drivers will do. Uh, some team owners uh, who just prefer to be there. Keep in mind, they're usually investing a lot of money in these motor coaches, and they are million-dollar plus usually. So there's a mentality of, this is my hotel room. This is my mobile, true mobile home. This is the home that I have that I use at 80, 90% of the events that I go to. And so having invested a lot of money in this, whether it's buying one, leasing one, whatever, they're spending what they would be spending on hotels on those motor coaches. And so that's the mindset as often as possible, going to have that motor coach there. And it also, for those that have families, maybe kids as well, it is a pretty awesome benefit you know earn enough money to be able to have a motor coach so that you can provide that consistency for the family right sons daughters whomever aren't constantly bouncing around from all kinds of things that don't feel like home don't feel familiar have all your toys have all your whatever uh, your parents come your your spouse's parents whatever just creates a real true family rallying point that is consistent from event to event. So yeah, uh, if a motor coach is there, it would be very rare here um, from your question of, do they use it during the day and then go to the hotel at night? Uh, they would be using it the whole time. Uh, between sessions, right? Uh, might obviously spend time in the motor, uh, the hauler there, whatever team they happen to be with, be up in the engineering room talking about whatever debriefing after a session, might have whatever responsibilities to do right there, autograph session or whatever, get a free window, going to go dive back to the motor coach, have a bite, take a nap, see the family, whatever, and then kind of pop back out and go back into a full work mode. Um, Chris Kowalik, how you doing? Chris, love this question, by the way. You say, do sponsors find any benefit to working with drivers who mix it up with other drivers, like who may not always run up front? but we'll end up in countless highlights for door-to-door racing or crashes. Say Romain Groshaw comes to mind last year. Always seemed to be banging side pods, wrecking with someone, pushing people off track. He was usually approached for statements and sponsor names would be on the screen, but then with a negative connotation. Say eyes are eyes and screen time is what sponsors want. 
Great question. Yeah, this is where pressure comes from. Uh, Jack Harvey's situation this last season at Ray Hollett and Lanigan Racing with High V as the primary sponsor wasn't so much from Jack crashing a bunch and running into folks and being towards the back, just not running competitively, not laying all that uh, blame on him by any means, not blaming anybody, just saying that that wasn't just Jack. I mean, obviously it takes a full team effort to succeed or not succeed, but this change we've seen of car numbers and sponsors with High V leaving Jack's car and the number 45 leaving his car and going over to Christian Lingard's, this is a direct reaction, Chris, to this. I don't know whether it was Hy-Vee that asked for this, whether RLL decided to do it, thought it was going to be the best thing to keep the sponsor happy. Is it a little bit of both that led to this? I truly don't know the reasoning for the change, but the change, without a doubt, is in reaction to everything you mentioned here. Hey, we don't see much of you during these broadcasts because you're not running in a place on track where the cameras tend to focus for more than a few seconds here or there. And if it's crash-related, boy, we get to see the crash, and we'll see the sponsors' names in that footage. But then, depending on when that crash happens, we certainly know for sure for the rest of the race we're not going to see. There's zero chance of seeing that sponsor, those colors, uh, and what the branding there in general. And so... The benefit side that you mentioned here, Chris, this is a big one. And so this past season, High V, which went hardcore in IndyCar, just didn't get the return on investment. And so the reaction to this moved them to a driver who proved more often than not last season that they could be running closer to the area of the uh uh, the track where the cameras are focused most heavily tends to be the leaders or close to the leaders. So, yes, the answer is sponsors do not get benefit when they are stuck in a place where the cameras aren't looking. Other quick thing here, too, sometimes you have, maybe in the case of a friend like Dalton Kellett, right? It's a family-owned company, K-Line. You know, they're not going to sell a ton of extra K-Lines because, Dalton's running in third compared to 13th. But of course, there's an expectation or a hope that the money they're spending to have this car, to have their colors and branding and whatnot on it, that it will be seen on television more than in fleeting moments. But if you have a driver who's not really of the same caliber of the champions in Indy 500 winners, there's also has to be a realistic accepting of okay this is not really what we're going to be getting the last little thing to to note here chris that's a dangerous can be a dangerous thing most sponsors have an expectation that they have spent money and they are going to get equal if not greater value and trust me it's always an expectation of greater value than what they spent in exposure on television the amount, and they're, trust me, every major sponsor after every race is adding up how much screen time they had, how many mentions they had. All of these things happen, have been happening for decades upon decades. We spent how much on the season? 
and we got how much in terms of airtime mentions whatever does this add up to a plus or a minus on the uh the uh the value side for those who are aligned with a smaller team that has not performed very well for those who are aligned with a driver who is not blessed with talent to run towards the front it is absolutely crucial chris for those teams and or those drivers to communicate clearly with those sponsors we're going to activate like mad do everything we can to get you exposure but if you're going in thinking that the cameras are going to be trained on our car all race every race this is a relationship destined to fail you have to set realistic expectations if you are not a Penske, Ganassi, Andretti, etc., where your history says, yep, we're going to be towards the front. You're going to get big value. You let your sponsors dream a little bit and have expectations that exceed reality. That, Chris, is where sponsors become ex-sponsors. Uh, Max Camposano? What? We got a question from you, Max. That is awesome. Uh, you say people love to talk about the glory days of racing and uh, wishing racing now was more like it used to be. You say, is there a period of IndyCar racing you wish we could get back to, be in terms of drivers, tech, race locations, etc.? Yeah, I, I try not to do this a ton just because what was amazing to me that I love, the glory days, those were mine. Those tend to happen to everybody in whatever era they come into whether it's racing or other sports or music, whatever, like the thing that you first really got stuck into, whatever that was, tends to be the best and your favorite and amazing, and it'll never be like that again. So for those who just found IndyCar in 2022, it's probably IndyCar 2022, the best thing ever. It's never going to be better 10 years from now, 20 years, going to be looking back saying, boy, this is garbage. Remember back in 22? Best ever. So I try not to be that guy too much, but I can tell you, having been there for the cart IndyCar series for about half of the eighties, all the nineties worked in cart, uh, for the Hogan racing team in 99. Um, yeah, it's the cart era in general, uh, same particular mid to end of the nineties, just amazing. So many manufacturers, engine manufacturers, chassis manufacturers, there's diversity in tire brands with Goodyear and Firestone, driver caliber young driver old legends and whatnot great mix there and the racing was phenomenal the cars were the fastest craziest amazingest i mean really this i don't think of this as glory days max it's what it actually was it not so much a subjective thing if you were there and saw it and witnessed and felt it and experienced it you mentioned cart you mention any of those things to those who were there mechanics drivers fans there i think it's a high 90 percentage rate where we're gonna have folks saying this was the best i loved it um most amazing thing ever 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 so yeah uh give me the late 90s cart and oh boy pretty amazing times um Two more questions to go, and we've now just hit 9 o'clock Pacific, I 
think we might be having a driver announcement uh, here coming imminently. Um, why don't we go to Hire Lee? CMP with all the talk about Penske Entertainment's lack of vision for the series. I began to wonder about Penske Entertainment's vision for the Speedway. You see, right since day one, major effort has been put in to revamp the facility. Seems to have a vision um, there as well about adding IMSA. Uh, maybe eyes on having F1 back one day. Suggests, all that suggests there's a vision in place for IMS. You say, has Penske been focused on bringing strength and stability to the Speedway first and put the series second uh, since it looks like uh, the Speedway's financial success uh, is what's being used to prop up the whole series? I, I don't think you're too far away from the mark on this. Without a doubt, well-known thing for those who've loved the sport and been involved in it for a long time, followed it for a long time, I should say, or even for those who are somewhat new, the annual income created by the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, that is the thing that makes everything else work within their universe. The money and profits generated by the Indy 500, the Brickyard, and whatever else, primarily the Indy 500. But those profits have, for the longest time, been the thing that have helped fuel the IndyCar series finances. It makes sense, only makes sense, to continue to feed uh, whatever you need to feed to improve IMS, make it more attractive to get more people in. The more people that come in for events at IMS, more that it benefits IndyCar. So I would understand if I owned both, I would be doing exactly what Penske Entertainment's doing to try and improve, modernize, just make IMS awesomer and awesomer. Where I think there's a newish dynamic here, new-ish, and I do need to really qualify the ish part of this. I don't know if the IndyCar series has really and truly ever been a serious place of profit. And so this is going back to its days, long-standing, decades and decades and decades, long-standing tenure being owned by the Holman George family at least modern era, 2000s and up through most of the, the 2010s, obviously sale was concluded, I think, whatever it was, January 1st, 2020, uh, with Penske Entertainment. But at least this century, the general note that I've heard from the variety of folks who've been presidents of IndyCar series and run the series was Holman George's were never stingy and truly just giving them no money to work with in terms of an annual budget. Never crazy spend, but never super, super tightening their belts. Um, as I understand, we have a situation with the new owners, Penske Entertainment, where the you can just say that the costs to run IndyCar each year, as I have been made to understand, certainly outweigh um, what the desired budget would be for that series. Hey, this IMS thing, that generates money. Hey, this IndyCar thing, it soaks up the money. I think under the Holman-George administration, 
we had a a willingness and an understanding that okay yeah indycar is a business we are now the sole controllers of indycar since this air quote merger that took place in 2008 where really it was just buying out the dying champ car series there's been one indycar series since 2008 the holman george family uh, was in control of that and usually a little bit of grumblings from time to time about not wanting to just burn you know all the profits for future holman george futures and whatnot but there was pretty decent willingness to invest uh, if it was going to help grow the series make it bigger make it better just to close on this hire i think it's safe in saying because this is just what i keep hearing from smart folks who would kind of sort of know these things Penske Entertainment is looking at IndyCar in a very different way. It's not kind of a family legacy thing. It's not a heartstring thing where, okay, geez, I'd rather not put in more money here, but uh, we need to. I've heard that there's been much less willingness to do this under the, uh, the new ownership, and it's being treated as more of just a straight business. And the loss side of things, has been reacted to very heavily uh, in dialing down budgets, reducing, cutting wherever possible to reduce the uh, the red on the ledger and try and get it closer to black. That would make total sense, 1,000% sense with any business. I know this is a hard thing to say because it doesn't make a lot of sense, business sense, but I think what we might have lost is the willingness to look at the IndyCar series at not just a pure business, red, black, profit, loss, do everything you can to get it out of the red, even if it means slashing marketing budgets and slashing this and not seeing that and so on and so forth. Um, I do wonder if there's just a bit more of passion spending to improve IndyCar that's been forfeited here in a strict pure business approach has been taken and we're seeing the effects of that and not necessarily the super positive benefits of that so I get it I understand it I yada 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 we do seem to be at a time higher where IndyCar feels like it could be on the verge of something big becoming more popular if it were made aware to more folks just wondering is this belt tightening and clamping down is that conspiring against this and will it conspire against this or is this something where an investment a real hey we're going to spend big and particularly on the marketing and promotion side to try and create awareness like never before we're going to go all in and if that doesn't work okay at least you can say we did it i think the frustration here that you and many others have heard and read about and listened and watched from indycar drivers in particular uh in recent months i think the frustration is if the approach is let's not go all in i don't know if we do anything but kind of fall back and back and farther back to other series that are spending and investing in that area and reaping big benefits. 
Uh, Grant Stouter, we're going to close with you, uh, and I might sprinkle in one or two more that are below the red line of death here. Uh, you say, here's an off-the-wall one. Who in the first two seasons of the IRL do you think could hold their own in cart or modern IndyCar? And you also say, with IRL guys as bad as my cart proselytizing father would have me believe. Yeah, many were, especially in the first couple of years, Grant. It was uh, no filter for the most part. Kind of anybody that wanted to do it was allowed. And there were a lot of drivers that were not really memorable, nor should they uh, have been because maintaining a high level of quality was just not something uh, that was done back then. As for who from the first year or two, and I, I realize we assume uh, they're at the same level of talent as they were back then. We're not talking about them being super old uh, and maybe slower right now. But uh, who, I mean, Tony Stewart for sure. Realize that road racing is something that he would have needed to develop more and more. But yeah, with that kind of talent, I mean, the guy's, yeah, just ridiculous. Uh, Buzz Calkins for sure. No, I'm just kidding. Not Buzz Calkins. Um, trying to think who else. Uh, and I'm, okay, I'm going to admit that I'm going uh, going to do a little Wikipedia uh, search here live on the radio because I need to try and remember some of the uh, the jokers that might have actually been uh, pretty darn good. Buddy Lazier for sure. Uh, he wasn't. You know, Buddy was never championship material, but he was also very, very, very good. Uh, I think Buddy in quality cars, and we saw him do this. Whenever he had a quality car, he really jumped out, stood out as uh, uh, you know race-winning champion level in the uh, the IRL. But I do think that in better equipment, in good equipment um, today in IndyCar, uh, he could you know, again, if we were to keep him at that same thirty-year-old age or whatever, I think he'd be pretty darn special. Just looking through the list of names here, Leindyke, obviously. I mean, he was a cart guy who moved to the IRL, so that would be a pretty easy one for him to come back. Super talented there. I'll just grab one. I mean, and a lot of these names are folks who were in cart and moved over. So, I, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to really fall on any of them, right? The, the Scott Braytons and Cheevers and, and whatnot. Um, why don't I go with one who he was in cart, not a lot of cart, didn't have many upper. Great opportunities there, but I think take him as a young driver and chuck him into a top cart drive or a top NTT in a car series drive today, Davy Jones. If y'all aren't aware of Davy Jones, look him up, read about him, learn about him. A uh, guy from New York, someone who's been a, become a really good friend. Oh my goodness. This guy, I think he could have been lightning, could have been magic. In a uh, in a top tier cart IndyCar program um, for sure, no doubt. Uh, let's see. I'm just going to see if there's any others to pick up here real quick. Zach Dean, you're curious about what's uh, going to happen to the old race cars once they're retired, the DW12s. First of all, they're never going to be retired. They're going to be used forever. Um, those tend to turn into show cars. I'm sure some will be sold because there's 60 plus of them across all the teams. Uh, but yeah, I think you're just going to see a lot of, uh, a lot of show cars since the next car will have an arrow screen uh, and it'll be a different arrow screen. Um, yeah, I think we're just going to see these turned into show cars cause they're going to look, uh, similar enough to whatever the next DW 26 or whatever might be. 
I think that's what we're going to see. But there will be some sales. There will be some private sales. It'll be interesting to see if I doubt Chevy or Honda are going to do much to support uh, engine leases for uh, any of the any of those who want to buy them and use them at vintage racing. So what I look forward to seeing, Zach, is this happened with the previous generation of cars, the previous formula, is folks stuffed other motors in there. Um, whether it's going vintage racing or just having a really awesome track day car. So that's the stuff I want to see. Someone going to chuck a four-rotor Mazda in a DW12? I don't know, but I can't wait to uh, to find out. Uh, Ken Rosher, or is it Ken Rosher? Not sure, Ken, you tell me. See, in the past, uh, before the red flag rule changes were made, some drivers would, quote, allow their car to crash to find its limits. Talking about qualifying, I assume. Um, so any chance Kyle Kirkwood was told by Andretti Autosport to find those limits in 2022 while working for Foyt. So in 2023, he won't need to push those limits. Um, it's a really abstract question, Ken, and one that I would say isn't really rooted in reality. Um, Kirkwood would not receive instruction from another team to crash a team's car. Um, yeah if he was told by the Foyts to do that, that granted, that's not something they would ask him to do, but he would not go out and intentionally crash a Foyt car because the Andretti team asked him to do that. The Andretti team would not ask him to do that because it makes no sense because he's a high caliber championship level professional who has established himself as a professional by being able to find the limits and live at them and sometimes go over them slightly and win a bunch of races and a bunch of championships. Um, so there's nothing that he would learn by going over the limits in 2022 and crashing a bunch to then apply in 2023 months later, a year later, you name it and go, aha, magically I now know how to drive perfectly at 100% because I went over them and crashed. Now, I realize there's the famous anecdote of uh, Formula One legend Gilles Villeneuve on his debut, Formula One debut, 77, I think it was, at Silverstone, driving from McLaren in a older chassis and having no real time to practice or test before the event. He famously went out and basically spun the car at corner after corner after corner and was thought to be just too wild, too untalented, etc. afterwards. And they asked whomever they were, maybe the stewards, why or his team. And he said, well, I don't have the luxury of time to go out and gently work up to find the limits of the car. I need to push and find it and overstep them to know what the limit is. Villeneuve, possibly one of the most talented race car drivers ever to live, capable of doing that, not crashing, found the limits, and then stayed within them. Doing this across a season would not then be something that Kyle could use to his benefit, moving to a different team, different engine manufacturer, different setups. Uh, who knows what tire changes are going to take place from Firestone from year to year. There's nothing that he would learn by doing this throughout 2022 with Foyt that he could then apply to his benefit in 23. Too much of a change from venue to venue, time to time, situations. Maybe it's really hot and the track is super greasy at wherever last year and going back maybe it's going to be cold and the track is going to offer a very different level of grip there's no through line 
where this would make sense or be of any benefit or value. Kyle just crashed a lot and made a lot of mistakes and it wasn't a good look, but none of that came from any kind of instruction from his future team uh, to do that. Uh, where else do we go? Mark Sanchez, good question here about folks investing. Why should folks invest? Uh, definitely try and carry that over to the next episode. SRT Nick, you're asking for being too hard on Penske. I mean, think about how hard Penske Entertainment and P- Team Penske. They happen to be on themselves, right? Uh, They accept nothing less than perfection. They demand more from themselves on the team side than maybe any other team. I don't know if it would be out of character then to hold Penske Entertainment, led by the very same people who uh, who formed and led the team in question or teams in question, to a lower standard. A couple more here to close. Uh, Petrovic Parsons, does Rosie allow you to hold her for extended periods of time? Uh, yeah, uh, Rocky, definitely not. He get, freaks out and thinks he's going to get put into the carrier and taken to the groomer. Uh, so he lets us hold him once every couple of weeks for about 30 seconds at a time. Uh, but yeah, uh, Rosie, on the other hand, she'll just, I, I can chuck her over my shoulder and she'll just lay there all day. Uh, D minus three thirteen, and this will be our final question for the episode. If Penske Entertainment had a vision for the future of IndyCar, what makes you think they would share it with you? It's an interesting question, um, because that's what sporting organizations do, or business organizations do. One where they have a lot of members, a lot of constituents. Hey, who are we? What are we? And what are we doing? Where are we going? That's kind of the basic tenant of what happens here. So if we're looking at IndyCar specifically, this is something IndyCar has done many times throughout the years. Hey, this is where we are today. This is where we want to go. We want the cars to be faster, faster, safer. We want them to be hybrid. We want them to be not hybrid. We Here's all the things we want to do. We want to go towards... Uh, renewable sustainable fuel we want to do like this is what they do so they don't keep these things private nor have they ever imsa for example every year at road america holds its state of the series where it maps out everything that it's done and everything that it's going to do the next year and in the following years keeping all of its stakeholders teams sponsors drive everybody media clued in this is who we are this is where we're going so The question is a little bit weird to me because, hey, we've got a grand vision, but we're not going to tell anyone about it or we're not going to tell you. Yeah, that's just not the way things work. So the reason I have been hammering them and some others have as well on this topic is they have no vision for the future. The plan they're currently on is a little over a year away from reaching its end. There's nothing else that we know of, and I've asked recently, and there's nothing set in place to take the series beyond its move to hybridization in 2024. There's no other grand plan beyond that. And so this is the thing that some of us are looking for. I'll be interested to see what Penske Entertainment comes up with, because this would be their first roadmap 
for where they believe IndyCar should go and want it to go in the future. What they've been working from and riding on was all created prior to their purchase of the series. Jay Fry uh, and the IndyCar operations team. This is all stuff they came up with and continues to be rolled out. That's about to run out in 2024. So what is Penske Entertainment going to do? Tell us what it vision happens to be for the future. Waiting to find out. All right, y'all. Thank you for everything you sent in. Thanks to Jerry Suddeth for putting everything together. Thanks to your great questions. If you want to join the Pruday, send that email to prudayrocks at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. And also congratulations to Marcus Armstrong from New Zealand, who about 20 minutes ago was uh, revealed to be the road racing driver for Chip Ganassi Racing in their fourth entry, the number 11. can tell you that I've already written the story on who I expect to join Marcus to handle the ovals there. Uh, not going to confirm anything because I don't believe there is anything to confirm, meaning it actually being done. I know that Ryan Hunter Ray is considered to be the absolute top candidate and choice for that. Also aware that both portions of that seat, the road and street courses and the ovals are something that need funding to be brought. Obviously Marcus, uh, very successful family car dealerships and such down under. Uh, that's something that is making the road and street courses available to him. Um, Ryan Hunter Ray isn't a person who brings sponsorship and I'm not aware of Marcus bringing such a crazy number that would allow Ganassi to then go and hire who they want for the Oval. So just say that nothing to confirm. This is not a fact by any means, but while Captain America as a Indy 500 winner makes all the sense in the world for the Ovals, I don't think that's going to be the case. Uh, How's this? Y'all are really smart. I don't need to mention the person's name. Um, there's another Indy 500 winner out there who is figuring out what they're going to do next year. Uh, the story that I've written, which is speculative at this point, but rarely do I write just purely on what I think is going to happen. It's usually based on what smart folks have told me elsewhere. Um, I think there's going to be another Indy 500 winner who ends up getting that oval opportunity at Ganassi. And assuming that happens, they may have won that race more than once. Uh, I think we're going to be staring at a pretty incredible lineup for the good old Chip Ganassi racing team in 2023. I uh, have also confirmed, because uh, he rang yesterday and told me and confirmed uh, that Dale Coyne does not have anyone signed for its second car. There was a belief, long-standing belief, I've written about, I think y'all expected as well, that Marcus Armstrong would be that driver in the second car, but indeed uh, things kind of fell through there. There's notification given to the coin team a couple days ago that Marcus would not be continuing with them, and so now they are working on plan Bs, and Dale tells me he has some really good plan Bs. So uh, watch this space. Speak to you soon. <laughs>